This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic, ranked number one in heart care 25 years in a row. Learn more at clevelandclinic.org care. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Simon from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, October 31st. Today, melting sea ice in the North Atlantic, plus America's relationship with Turkey, sexy Halloween costumes, and the Nationals win the World Series. These islands are very dramatic when you're there. They have these huge sandstone cliffs, or what they call capes, but that also happen to be very fragile. Brady Dennis is an environmental reporter for The Post. This summer, he went to the Magdalen Islands in eastern Canada, close to Nova Scotia. It's a place that has warmed more than 2.3 degrees Celsius since the late 19th century. That's over 4 degrees Fahrenheit, more than twice the global average. So they're in the middle of this gulf, which used to, most winters, be covered with ice for a large part of the winter, which kind of protected these islands from the winter storms. It would act almost like a blanket for the waves. That ice has been disappearing over time, at the same time that the sea levels have been rising faster here than in in many parts of the world. So that together means that these uh, little group of islands are really experiencing a growing battle against erosion, a lot more flooding. And, you know, when you're there, you get this sense of the urgency and immediacy of this because everywhere you look is the ocean. It's a small place, and from everywhere you look is the sea, and there's nowhere... As one person told me, there's nowhere to hide. When you went out there, what did it look like? What is it like there? It's incredibly gorgeous. It's way up north of Maine in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which is far east in Canada. It's a little group of islands, an archipelago that's in the middle of this huge gulf between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. And they're kind of out there on their own. There's 12,000 people or so living on this island, and... Uh, Not much around them, but the sea. You know, it's almost like an Edward Hopper painting. They have these pastel houses that sit on these rolling hills, and from almost everywhere you can see the Gulf, the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So for the people that you talk to there, how have their lives started to change because of what's happening there? In dramatic ways, uh, especially in more recent years. We have erosion all the time, every year. It's the ocean, but I mean... In the last 10 years, in my mind, it's just, it's, it's incredible. The changes I've seen just in 10 years. One woman whose door we knocked on, because she happens to live basically on the edge of a cliff, and she told me I don't go into my backyard anymore because I'm afraid basically it will fall out from under me. Several of her neighbors have had to move their houses farther inland. And she said, you know, the day is coming when I'll probably have to do that, too. And when you say that she's scared that her backyard is going to fall off the edge of this cliff, how likely is that to happen or how much is that happening now to other people around her? It's happening more and more. uh, And I think everyone expects it to happen more and more. So a number of houses have had to be moved away from the cliffs. The officials, local officials there have forbid any new construction near the cliffs in certain places of the island. There's a strip of vacation cottages that they've now said, you know, all have to be abandoned within the next year because they're no longer going to 
do anything to protect it. They're right on the water. They keep getting flooded, most recently during Hurricane Dorian. And so there is this realization that um, there are some things you can do to try to hold the sea back, but in certain places, you just have to accept retreat. And what are some of the other ways that the fact that the sea ice isn't as frozen anymore, that that is changing the way the whole island can function? Well, the lack of sea ice, you know, makes this place much more vulnerable to storms, which typically hit hardest in the winter. One woman said, when I was a kid, you would look out at the Gulf and it was all ice as far as the eye could see. And she said, now you look out and all you see is the ocean. And so for these islands, it means when you look out and it was white and it was frozen, any storm that blew through could still do damage, but the waves were kept at bay, were were kept down. And so now that line of defense is basically gone. There are winters when they do get ice close to shore, but it's it's far less reliable than it used to be. So now, for instance, last November, a huge storm blew in and caused huge amounts of erosion, like 50 feet in some places of the island just disappeared. And so that not only threatens people's houses, it threatens, you know, the local hospital, which sits, you know, pretty shockingly close to a 50-foot tall cliff. It threatens the city hall, the municipal building, the main road that goes all over the island that is really kind of the lifeblood of this place. It connects various islands. It connects different communities. That's always in risk of getting washed out. But then there's this other wrinkle where the warming of the Gulf around this place has been a huge benefit in recent years to the lobster fishermen. I mean, they're killing it. They're like, you know, they're catching twice or more what their fathers and grandfathers caught. And why is that? Uh, Because, uh, you know, lobster are seeking colder water. You know, the lobster that were once in Rhode Island uh, have gone to Maine and now are moving from Maine uh, north to this Gulf. So it's great. It's good times now. You know, you go to the wharfs where these fishermen uh, come every day and there's talk of buying new boats, buying new engines, buying new pickup trucks. You know, everybody's happy, but, I, you know, they also, there's a realization that this may not last, and they don't know how long uh, the good times are going to last. And the people that you talk to, do they feel like they're kind of on this front line of what other people are going to be experiencing? The fact that climate change has now affected their day-to-day decision-making on where they can live and, and what they'll be able to do? Yeah, it's really interesting. Both residents there and scientists who study this place used kind of similar phrases when I talked to them. And the word that kept coming up was like, these people are like pioneers in this sense. Not that other people around the world haven't dealt with flooding and erosion, but in this corner of the world, you know, there are communities in Quebec, other communities in Quebec that you know, are facing some pretty serious erosion. And there are communities that have flooding. Um, But this set of islands, the Magdalene Islands, are seeing all this first. They're seeing it more intensely and more immediately than other places. And, you know, in, in literal and figurative sense, they're kind of out there on their own in the middle of the ocean to figure it out. Did you get a chance to talk to local officials about this? And, and how are they responding to this? So I talked to one official, Serge Bourgeois, who was the city planner. He said, 30 years ago, this wasn't even part of my job description, dealing with climate change and erosion. And now it's my priority. It's the thing I deal with every single day of my life. 
So I think officials are trying to do a lot of things to adapt. They're trying to reinforce the roads. They're, they're, they're bringing in uh, large rocks from other islands like Nova Scotia, uh, which are expensive and which can kind of be ugly, but they need them in certain places to, to protect roads and other infrastructure. They're dumping tons of sand in places to try to reinforce the dunes and protect the beaches. And the mayor, Jonathan Lapierre, referred to this as feeding the monster. You know, it's not a solution that lasts, but, uh, but it'll hold things off for a while. So they know that there's things that are temporary, there's things that are longer lasting, and then finally they're picking certain places that um, they just can't save uh, and that they're going to say, we need to pull back, we need to retreat from these places because as, as Serge Bourgeois said, you, you can't save everything. You use this phrase that that people there are beginning to accept retreat. And it strikes me that even though there are a lot of places where people are starting to feel the consequences of climate change, that this is a place where people in some ways are having to say, maybe we just can't live here anymore, that they have to that they're making these bigger decisions that other people have not yet had to make. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they've arrived at the place that we can't live on these islands anymore. But they've done in certain corners of the island what we aren't always willing to do here or or elsewhere, which is to say, you know what? The sea is just going to take this piece of land, and there's no sense in fighting that. This place, this this street or this peninsula is not going to be habitable anymore. So we might as well go ahead and live with that now, make that decision, and get out of the way because the sea is rising and there's no sense in spending what money we do have on this. Let's spend it in another way where we can protect what we must protect. Brady, thank you so much. Thank you. Brady Dennis is an environmental reporter for The Post. The story is part of the 2C Reporting Project, a Washington Post examination of the fastest warming places around the world. You can find a link to this story and others about the places on the front lines of climate change at postreports.com. Earlier this month, when Turkey invaded northern Syria, it was widely viewed as an act of aggression against Kurdish communities there, and an act of defiance against the U.S., which had an alliance with the Kurds. And pretty quickly, U.S. lawmakers criticized the Turkish government's decision to attack. I simply don't understand why the administration did not explain in advance to Erdogan that it's unacceptable for Turkey to attack an American ally. And when that happened, I was confused. Because I had always been under the impression that Turkey was a close ally to the U.S., that they had this very valuable strategic partnership, that especially because Turkey is the only Muslim member of NATO, the U.S. considered Turkey kind of an intermediary with the rest of the Middle East. Basically, that Turkey was our friend. Well, I think that's true, certainly for the Western side of Turkey. You know, Turkish troops have participated in peacekeeping operations. They've been in Afghanistan with the Americans for a very long time. This is Karen DeYoung. 
She's the senior national security correspondent at The Post, and she's been covering Turkey for a long time. She says that the relationship between the U.S. and Turkey has had this very dramatic shift over the past decade, a shift that has a lot of other implications for global politics. Turkey has played a number of roles, sometimes in ways that that we don't really understand because they have priorities and concerns that we don't necessarily share. And sometimes we, the United States, question whether Turkey is truly committed to the West. To understand the origins of this shift, you need to understand the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. President Erdogan was a political figure in the 1990s in Turkey. In the early 2000s, he formed a political party, the AK, it's called, and that party has gradually risen up. He first was prime minister and then became president in 2014. What did the rise of President Erdogan represent? For people who supported him, uh, it has represented more independence. Uh, It has represented more of an Islamic identity. Uh, It has represented a less secular Turkey. And that has caused problems, with certainly with the military in Turkey, which is secular by and large, um, and a lot of suspicion. And in July of 2016, a segment of the military uh, basically seized a bunch of airplanes and went into a bunch of government buildings and said that they were performing a coup and that Erdogan was out. Erdogan happened to be out of town at the time and managed to escape. And in fact, those members of the military that remained loyal to him quickly quashed the coup. My dear brothers, let us not forget that we make up a single country. We are united. We are a single nation. We are united with the Kurds, the Laz, the Circassians, the Abkhazians. How do you think President Erdogan's rise to power changed Turkey's role in, in, in the region and in the world? I think Turkey and President Erdogan thought of itself as a go-between between East and West, between the Muslim world and the West. I think that both circumstances and Erdogan's political beliefs have pushed them in a direction where they're much less able to do that now. On many, many issues, the Turks and the Arab world in particular are are at odds now, parts of the Arab world, important parts. That's internationally. Domestically, I think that Turkey has become a much more divided society that it was, and the kind of dedication to the secularist principles of the Ataturk era and the whole sort of post-Ottoman growth of Turkey has become a little more separate than it, than it was in the past. So fast-forwarding to where we are now, where Turkey has attacked northern Syria and, and Kurds there, even though the Kurdish people there are U.S. allies, they helped us defeat ISIS. I wonder if that symbolizes a moment for Turkey where they're like, look, we're not just going to do things that the U.S. wants us to do if it's not in our own interest. That like, yes, we want to be allies, but 
we are ultimately going to do what's best for us, even if it's really, really bad for the U.S.? I think that's a fair statement. Um, If you go back the last several months, um, the Trump administration has tried very hard to negotiate with Turkey. They have sent their uh, Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, there saying, look, why don't we have a a really good trade deal, Uh, $100 billion. Maybe we can do something with the Kurds. We'll move them back from your border and we'll try to jointly patrol that area to make sure that they don't pose a threat to you. We'll invite President Erdogan to come to the White House this fall. So all of that was in motion um, within the maybe a month ago. And um, the Turks were saying, well, that's fine, but we really need to move against these Kurds. What is the current status of the Turkish attack on northern Syria? Well, Turkey has sent its forces in to a relatively narrow strip of territory along the border, about 75 miles wide, 20 to 30 miles deep. And it has made an agreement with Russia and the Syrian government, mostly with Russia, that they will jointly patrol all of the territory to the east and the west of that between the Euphrates River and the border with Iraq. Now, this was area that was not included in the agreement that Turkey had with the United States. And they believe that they have now pushed the Syrian Democratic Force, the Kurdish fighters, uh, out of that area now. The Kurdish fighters have said that they will continue to fight against the Islamic State with the Americans. Uh, They say they are by and large out of that territory, although they're still complaining about it. I'm wondering how that compares with President Trump's relationship with President Erdogan, because it seems like even when there have been moments of tension between the U.S. and Turkey, that Trump has tried to develop this relationship with Erdogan that seems kind of buddy-buddy. President Trump has done this with a lot of leaders, um, with Kim Jong-un in North Korea, with Vladimir Putin of Russia, and certainly with Erdogan, who he has described as a friend. Thank you very much, and it's a great honor and privilege, because he's become a friend of mine, to introduce President Erdogan of Turkey. I think one question now will be, Will the United States move ahead with the various emoluments it had offered Turkey not to invade now that Turkey has invaded? The president indicated the offer for President Erdogan to visit the White House, still there, supposed to come in November. There was uh, a promise of a $100 million trade deal. There's some indications that that's still on the table. So I think we've got to wait and see what happens with a lot of this stuff. Most recently, the the Turks have said they're going to ask the United States for the extradition of the Syrian Kurdish leader, who President Trump has praised as a great guy, uh, has said that they're still on board helping against the Islamic State. So there's, there's lots of stuff still on the table and lots of ways that this relationship can can still be troublesome, although it's important always to note that the president has said, this is my friend, he's a great leader, uh, and so we'll see how far he wants to carry that. Karen DeYoung covers national security for The Post.
And now, one more thing. Good morning, Michael Green. Hi there. My name is Jordan Marie Smith. Who are you with? The Washington Post. I've heard of the Washington Post. Yes. And I'm doing a story on sexy Halloween costumes. And yes. Like, what are the top ten sexy Halloween costumes? There's a sexy uh, poison ivy, sexy red riding hood, sexy snow white. Today is Halloween, and one of our producers and post reports is a big fan of this holiday. So when culture reporter Maura Judkis wrote about the rise of sexy Halloween costumes, Jordan Marie jumped at the chance to call up a few stores and hear about the outfits that companies put out this time of year. Sexy police officer, Indian princess, sexy flapper. So every year we see these costumes and there's always one that's kind of over the top or outrageous and it makes lots of news and people complain about it. And, you know, a lot of times they come from this one company, Yandy, and, you know, you have to kind of admire their entrepreneurial spirit. They always find these crazy costumes that are very much of the moment. And I just wanted to see where that came from. My name is Pilar Quintana Williams. I'm the vice president of merchandising for Yandy.com. And she designs a lot of the costumes there. We are able to almost build our own costume with everything that we have. Last week, Rise and Shine meme, you know, thank you to Kylie Jenner who had dropped us some new material. We're gonna wake Stormy up and get out of here and show you guys her room. Rise and Shine. Within two hours, we already created a Rise and Shine costume. Some of the costumes that didn't make the cut this year were Fat Thor, didn't want to go near that one, Detective Pikachu, Area 51 Guard, a vape goddess, a lot of controversy around that we decided to stay away from, a sexy Elizabeth Holmes, all you have to do is just get a black turtleneck dress and a wig, so that was easy and red lipstick and change your voice. And then we had the coffee cup from Game of Thrones. We've been able to create different silhouettes with different characters and still try to make the body of the costume sexy. So if it's tighter, if it's maybe got a plunging neckline, you know, maybe some bare shoulders, it just kind of might show a little bit more skin. But ultimately, it's the attitude of this girl wearing this costume. Maura Judkis is a culture reporter for The Post. And finally, one more, one more thing. Nationals up by four here in the ninth. Here they are, one strike away, one out away. Here it is! The Washington Nationals are world champions for the first time in franchise history. Like, this was a team that never believed that they were out of it. I'm Tracy Grant. I'm the managing editor for Standards and Ethics at the Washington Post and one of the newsroom's biggest Nationals fans, unabashed. If you knew anything about the Nationals, what was weird about this series was that they won the first two games. What was not weird was that they then found themselves on the brink of elimination two nights in a row. Somebody said to me this morning, 
oh, I turned it off in the seventh inning because it didn't seem like they were going to win. And I was like, you haven't been paying attention to the narrative of this season. You should have started watching in the seventh inning because they've always come from behind. You know, for a long time, and I've been in D.C. since 1993, and last night, it was pouring rain. It was a miserable night, and people were out in the streets watching the game, not live, but on television screens, just for a sense of a shared experience. And I think that's something that, you know, you would not have seen in D.C. previously. So today's a happy day. The Nationals won the World Series. (laughs) I can't wait for spring training. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Before we go, on Wednesday's episode, in a story about fires in California, we said that no company has ever shut off the power to prevent forest fires. That's actually not the case. It has happened before, but no American utility has ever done these kinds of blackouts at this scale, affecting millions of people. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.